0: That night the city
1: burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her, and yet the tower and the fire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God.
0: Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders Podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the
1: North American Anglican. Okay, welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I am the editor of the North American Anglican, and I am joined today by Father Isaac Rayberg. Hi, this is Isaac Rayberg.
0: I'm the uh, canon for liturgy in the Diocese of Cano West and uh, the rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas. It's so good good. to be here today.
1: Excellent. Yes, and uh, if you've been listening, then you know that Father Rayberg and I and uh, Deacon Brazier have all been trucking through this essay that is called The Spirit of Anglicanism by Paul Elmer Moore. And it can be found in the front matter or preface area of a volume called Anglicanism, Uh, which is a compendium of 17th century Caroline divinity. And uh, all of that information is found on the show notes on our website. So please go to northamanglican.com and click on podcast and learn more. And if you want to get a hold of a digital copy of what we're reading, you can read along that way or find a book. There should be uh, plenty of links available. But we are going to continue on with section Roman numeral six, which seems to be a continuation of this theme of infallibility in the church, which has been pretty fun, hasn't it? Oh, indeed. Yeah, definitely. um, Always a relevant subject, but if you've been following the headlines with um, the current Pope, uh, If you're listening in the future, that happens to be Pope Francis right now in 2008 of September (laughs) for the moment. Um, And he's had some interesting things to say about capital punishment, which have um, sort of riled uh, traditional Roman Catholics. And he's had some interesting, um, well, some interesting issues have been raised once again in Roman Catholicism with the issue of clerical uh, sexual abuse and people who've been involved in the cover-up. So this issue of how much authority does the church have and is it absolute authority and who possesses that authority really never ceases to go away in Christendom, especially insofar as there persist um, branches of the church that claim to have this sort of absolute infallibility.
0: Indeed, yeah, and that's that's the big, one of the big issues at the heart of the English Reformation is is uh, what is the authority of the church, that sort of thing.
1: Right, yep, and, and obviously, um, so far, as we've been going through more, he's been identifying this path that the Caroline Divines have tread that is um, reluctant to... Um, Give all authority to a foreign bishop, but also reluctant to give all authority to a an in sort of infallibilist uh, ecclesiastical structure locally. Um, And it seems that for Hooker, uh, that other extreme was what he was fighting against, perhaps with uh, certain Puritans of a Genevan mindset. So, and that's something that is uh, discussed in the previous section. So, all of that being said, I'm going to go ahead and read this first paragraph from Roman numeral section Roman numeral six, and we'll see where the conversation goes from there. Excellent. All right. At this point, the Anglican attitude towards infallibility raises a question to which only a tentative answer can be given in accordance with one's notion of what was implicit in the direction of Caroline theology. All branches of the church in the seventeenth century held the Bible to be infallibly inspired by God. If, then, the more liberal of the Anglicans at that time had been faced by the results of modern biblical scholarship, how would they have reacted? Popes, they knew, were against popes, councils against councils, some fathers against others, age against age. What then, if they had been compelled to extend this sic et non to the ultimate source of all authority, and to admit that the Bible also was a, quote, created power, unquote, and therefore to the same degree and in the same manner, subject to error? Practically, indeed, they had come very close to such an admission. How close we can see from Chillingworth's admission that the Bible, though infallible in fundamentals, is not an infallible guide in fundamentals. The distinction was directed against the claim of Rome that she was the inspired guardian and unerring interpreter of Scripture. But its implications go beyond any such purpose of apology. For quite manifestly, in practice, an oracle that offers no infallible guide to its meaning is itself, for any who consults it, fallible. So far, Chillingworth and those for whom he spoke would have been driven by the force of logic to go. But would they have yielded the next step? Would they, in submission to the evidence of critical examination, have been ready to acknowledge inconsistencies and contradictions in the Bible itself as a, quote, created power, unquote, while yet holding fast to the belief that it contains the record of a fundamental truth upon which the assurances of faith may be built. This is not an idle question. Upon an affirmative answer to it, depends the identity of the Anglican spirit as manifested in that day and in ours. Thus, much is at stake. Namely, whether the church can be said to have moved in a straight direction, whether in a word it is proper to speak of any such thing as Anglicanism.
0: Well there. (laughs) We have uh, the uh, kind of 19th century and 20th century uh, German Especially, but not only German uh, critical scholarship coming through here, and right. um, yeah, th- this is the kind of thing that is certainly still taught in a lot of seminaries, but it has come under uh, significant scrutiny, and and not just from kind of fundamentalist, you know, evangelical fundamentalist circles, but but among serious, um, reputable biblical scholarship, and right? So. I think that's important yeah. to point out from the get-go.
1: Yeah, Paul Elmer Moore is seems to be writing sort of uh, at the height of the most impressive <laughs> moment, perhaps, of this sort of uh, higher critical form of biblical scholarship. And um, yeah, I, I don't really um, particularly care for the direction he's taking things. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe this is just uh chillingworth coming through although uh it seems to me that this may be an in- another moment of interpreting uh, chillingworth himself or the or the 17th century carolines um, i have a hard time thinking that they had anything like this the sort of um critis- critical Uh, interpretations that we would later see Um, I have a hard time imagining uh, Laud or um, William Law thinking that I don't know that Abraham was never a real person or you know denying Mosaic scholarship I just have a hard time thinking that that was what they had in mind here and so it, it seems a little bit like we might be in danger of um confusing issues, although these, um, these, this issue of church authority and then also the ability to uh, interpret scripture safely is actually um, very often exactly the sort of thing that Roman Catholic apologists will bring up, right? I've had friends who ceased to be evangelical and converted to Roman Catholicism, And their big reason was authority. They said, well, I just don't know if the Bible says what I think it says if I'm an evangelical. But suddenly, apparently, (laughs) magically almost, um, under Roman Catholicism, I can now have faith in this magisterial teaching arm. But recently, as we had just mentioned in certain uh, issues, uh, this hasn't proven not to be such the case, has it?
0: right right there's a there's been a a significant um questioning going on in Roman catholic circles right now i I think the an op-ed and i believe it was the new york times was calling it a a looming catholic civil war and while the presenting issue is is of course how the authority structures have handled um the uh the sexual abuse and 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 cover-ups it ultimately boils down to can we trust um, the hierarchy, can we even trust the Pope? Mm -hmm. And, and it, and it, and you see Roman Catholics right now falling on either side. So it's, it's a, I do feel for them. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a very much a faith shaking moment, um, for, for the Roman Catholic.
1: Right. Yeah. This is not a time for gloating or for, um, I told you so's or any, anything along those lines. Um, But I think there is a sense in which we we kind of tread this middle path between um, praying for our Roman Catholic brethren that they don't lose faith in Christ because of this issue, and yet insofar as we hold the church they belong to to be in certain uh, serious errors... um, I can't help but also pray that they will find the light of the evangel. So um, it's, it's a tough thing. I don't think uh, the divisions in Christendom really give us uh, easy answers. Right. But um, this this particular issue has been uh, interesting from a historical and sort of a, I guess, um, theoretical perspective on just the notion of what is Roman Catholicism mm-hmm. because you'll notice that the people who are going after the church hierarchy the hardest right now are the conservative traditional Roman Catholics and that is interesting because as one friend pointed out um, the set of Agantist groups that have that they that hold that the papacy is that the chair of Peter, Saint Peter, is empty. There is no uh, uh, legitimate pope right now. They at the, at least say, "Look, if we re- if we recognize the current pope to be authoritative, we would follow everything he said, no matter what." Mm. <laughs> wow. That is a very old-fashioned Roman Catholic way of thinking, and and so they actually think the Society of uh, Saint Pius X and these other groups that are still in communion but always critical of the pope they think no you guys don't get it if he's the real pope you follow in it you follow him in everything he says if he's the false pope you don't have to listen to anything he says and so i i think that's interesting it kind of brings to a point this issue of authority of you know is can can you be a traditional roman catholic and have a problem with the pope gosh i don't know it's It's an interesting question. It's not our question necessarily, but it does relate directly to this issue of, well, what I've been told for most of my adult life by Roman Catholic friends is the great thing about being Catholic is that you can know um, when an inspired and authoritative word is being told to you, whether from scripture or whether it's being translated in an inspired and authoritative way by the magisterium.
0: And it's interesting, um, you know, along those lines, when, when, it, when it comes to, to the issue of the Bible and biblical scholarship, um, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church has not been afraid to kind of hold um, the scriptures, more critical scholarship, like what, what uh, Moore's alluding to and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. intention. You know, and, and I remember my very first real Bible that I think my folks bought me when I was about six or seven it was a new American Bible. So that's a a Roman Catholic translation Mm -hmm. and it was geared towards children only because it had a picture of Jesus loving all the little children of the world on the front. You know, we had a a red and yellow, black and white, all who are precious in this sight sort of thing. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) But the commentary in it, the the notes were just normal mildly liberal scholarship from the seventies and Hmm. eighties. It was, it was not anything in particularly, um, you know traditional in Roman Catholic circles, or certainly not what evangelicals would consider traditional. It was mm-hmm. just normal mildly liberal scholarship
1: yeah that's that's interesting, and I agree with you um you know when I was taking uh Old Testament class at Creighton University, which is a Jesuit university, um one of the most I would say kind of liberal leaning uh teachers I had was in that class, and he happened to be Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, yeah, and and he said, you know, look, this is absolutely in line with the spirit of Vatican II, and the bishop knows what I'm doing, so don't come to me with your <laughs> with your conservative <laughs> evangelical complaints, and uh, and I thought that was very interesting, and in the at the time, and I still sort of think this. I thought to myself, you know, this is what happens when Bible is playing second fiddle to church authority. Yeah, yeah, and there's a sense in which. If you give all the authority of interpretation to the church, then the Bible can be the old, you know, half the Old Testament may as well be just the invention of some Jews under Babylonian captivity. You know, some fanciful, uh, almost (laughs) like theological. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like. These were some interesting myths that may have been given to them under inspiration. But here's all the political stuff going on that re- gives you the real explanation. And yet, because we're not fundamentalists, we've got a church that can speak authoritative. And, and that is sort of the uh, one-stop fix to any issues you might have with uh, biblical inspiration. And I think when you allow yourself that sort of one-stop fix... fix, um, then suddenly your Bible falls apart because you don't need it to be authoritative anymore.
0: And it really boils down to this this fundamental question that um, if you, I mean, sit down and ask uh, Anglicans and Episcopalians, and it'll really show you from what perspective they're coming. Uh, is the Bible the Word of God, or does the Bible contain the Word of God? Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the fundamental question and i mean it's you look at the formularies and we we know where our reformers came down on that i mean it's it's you know they're they're not they're certainly not um regulative principle folks they're they're normative principle folks right and you know both in worship and just in life in general but um they they certainly see the scriptures as the word of god not merely containing mm-hmm.
1: it right I, i'm sure if you asked Thomas Cranmer to show him the part, show you the parts of Scripture that are really inspired, <laughs> versus the other parts. He, you know, he might put you in the tower or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I'm going to formally object to uh, Moore's interpretation here, but it's interesting and it brings up a lot of uh, important. Uh, questions. One, one more uh, example from the news that was related to this issue over the death penalty is um, a friend posted a tweet that. Uh, who, who's the the radical orthodoxy guy? Um, John uh, Milbank. Oh, yes. yes, yes. He uh, he had posted something uh, about, of course, there's the death penalty has always been the wrong thing, and then. A friend had or, or acquaintance had responded and said okay Marcion and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Milbank's response was t- something to the extent of uh, well if you're going to interpret it in that that way then anyone who's not a Calvinist has to be a Marcion or Marcionist or something and I thought that was just so silly I mean this idea that uh the Old Testament and for all we know parts of the Pauline corpus you know are sort of open for like first tier inspiration versus second tier inspiration and it's our job to decide where the real Bible is inside the Bible is just so um silly and really faithless to me Yeah, Uh, yeah um you know these people uh there may be something valuable that we can learn from them in other stuff but uh I'm not I decided that I'm not going to go purchase a John Milbank Bible commentary if, if one ever appears on the bookshelves. So anyway,
0: so and I can't I can't speak for all of the uh, various Anglican jurisdictions because I, I just don't have that kind of um, expansive knowledge in the alphabet. <laughs> you're not two. you're not the pope, the
1: universal pope of Anglicanism.
0: <laughs> God forbid. Uh, uh, but uh, but for I, I can I can definitely say, you know, that that the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. Of which, um, you know, my my diocese is a uh, is a member. Uh, we we kind of have a weird dual citizenship between Nigeria and the ACNA, but I'll let mm. I'll let the uh, the bishops and archdeacons work that out. Uh, but but in the um, the first fundamental principle in the, the articles um, in in ACNA's uh, Constitution of Canons, the very first fundamental principle is we confess the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments to be the inspired Word of God. Containing all things necessary for salvation, and to be the final authority and unchangeable standard for Christian faith and life. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's you know, the ACNA has come come down on a very particular uh, stance on this, and I'm I'm glad for that, even though some of the details were still, you know, are still being worked out. But so,
1: so nota bene, John Milbank, the ACNA is Calvinist. Apparently. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly, yeah. Sure, it is. <laughs> sure, it is. <laughs> Um, Okay, well, should we uh, move on? I'll let you get this next paragraph here. Great, Uh, great, Uh, number two, or second paragraph rather.
0: Now, no one is likely to dispute the statement that the 18th century failed in the main to carry on the line of development indicated by Hooker and Laud and Beveridge and Ken, and historians have pretty well agreed in holding the significance of the Oxford movement to be exactly this, that it brought theology back to the path from which it had deviated in the arid intervening years. The renewed emphasis on the Church as a divine institution, on the continuity of the Catholic tradition is overleaping the more radical and destructive elements of the Reformation, the enrichment of public worship, and the deepening of individual religious experience. These were common to the leaders of the movement, and they were a deliberate regression to the 17th century. All this abides, and Newman's part in the great Inseratio Ecclesiae will not be forgotten. But it may still be asked whether the thought of him, who is by common consent the greatest of the Tractarians, there was not also certain were not also certain traits which would have diverted the Church from its true course had they completely dominated, dominated the movement, as they finally did prevail in his own life. Hmm. Well, I, 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 go ahead. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure I could. Again, agree with more on that the logical direction that the uh, Carolines were moving in would have been uh, Newman style uh, Tractarianism um, so that, that's, that's right. kind of hard to say and I certainly don't think the logical end of the Tractarian movement had to be Newman's conversion to Rome after all we see Pusey and, and all the other major leaders remained faithful English churchmen
1: mm-hmm. yeah he seems to be saying I guess that you know, it's, it's a good thing that Newman didn't have the full uh, influence, I guess, on the Tractarian movement. But, yeah, it, I feel like this is sort of a classical Oxford movement um, stance. And I don't think there's really any denying that um, Moore finds himself within that camp. Which is to say that um, the Oxford movement picked up where the 17th century Carolines left off. And that the eighteenth century was kind of a wash, basically <laughs> or dry and arid, as he says, I mean, which leaves out um really I think the uh, monumental impact uh, upon uh the religious life of english and and Americans of the Wesleyan movement, you know the right. the evangelical revivals, which were although they they sort of eventually ran afoul of church authorities but the early on were done in parish churches. Um, I remember reading an account of you know a, a revivalist meeting that took place and and uh, the Eucharist immediately followed and they had so many people in this parish church that they had to um, bless the the wine numerous times in order to be able to disperse to everyone I mean, so these, this was it. these were uh, great movements of the Holy Spirit within the official ecclesiastical structure. And so to call it just utterly dry and arid, I think is just uh, prejudiced or ignorant, or maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. <laughs> and this may be a little bit of the uh, kind of
0: broader swath of things that you know in my diocese and in my own personal convictions we tend to be in. but I, I, I really think that the, uh, the Oxford movement and the evangelical revival, um, but both that 19th century and, and 18th century version of it really could have um, been could, could have used each other very well mm. um, mm-hmm. I mean they, they were both aiming at revival of the church just in different ways. And unfortunately, at least in the nineteenth century, we have this seeming animosity uh, between these two. You know, your 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 J. C. Ryle types on the one hand, sure. and then the you know the mm-hmm. you know Pusey and, and such on the other hand. Um, but but really, I mean, when when, when Ryle's talking about the gospel, it is, it is amazing. But when he talks about the sacraments, you, he's getting polemical, and it, and it gets unfortunate. Right, and and similarly, um, you know, especially in those early days in the Oxford movement, that idea of we are not just going to be the chaplain for the nation, but you know the church actually matters as the church. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an important thing, you know. And, and with the exception of a lot of track ninety, you know, I've read through the tracks, and and I I haven't I don't find anything particularly objectionable.
1: Right. And so, you know, there may be a valid point to be made that as far as the concerns, the specific concerns of the Tractarians go, um, maybe there was a bit of aridity, especially when it comes to the uh, belief in the effectual nature of the sacraments or um, a certain solemnity or seriousness when it comes to the public services of the church. And... So yeah, I think, you know, I I would maybe draw back my critique a little bit and just say that I think um, both of these movements, as you so well said, do in fact kind of contain something essential to the classical Anglican deposit. You know, we need the evangel. We need to be preaching the good news and... And that's an exciting thing, and sometimes it spreads like wildfire. But at the same time, we need to have a belief in the sacramental means of grace and the sort of uh, piety that makes sense with believing that, the, the, that, that baptism saves and that the Holy Communion really does communicate um, Jesus to the believer. And so, a serious belief in both um, had sort of been uh, lost. I suppose. I, I think you find sort of the rare bird that kind of believes in both, or, or you know, holds these things in tension, in the 19th century. But um, no, it does seem like things were mostly divided along party lines. And I also
0: think, and I also think that today we've seen. Um, Something of a success of both movements, at least in kind of theologically conservative Anglicanism here Mm. in the States. I mean, I can't speak for abroad. I don't I don't really know. But here in the States, it seems the norm is a relatively high evangelicalism, like a high church style evangelicalism. Mm. So there's influences from both. Um, It's rare to find a parish that doesn't celebrate communion every week. Um, it's rare to find a parish that doesn't um, have a high view of the sacraments, a high view of the church, but at the same time, um,
1: you know, biblical preaching,
0: biblical preaching, right, yeah. right, a um, a concern for, um, yeah, all of those fundamental things that, that that are that are typical of evangelicalism. Now, not everybody does it does it has the balance well, but I think that's a very common thing.
1: I think you're right. Um, And especially as representative of, you could say, the archbishops that we've had in the ACNA. Right. And sort of um, what those provincial meetings have looked like and what's been um, emphasized. And, you know, I've got my critiques of all of the above, but I will say that in the positive, you do have this sort of um, evangelical concern for scriptural teaching for evangelizing the lost you know not just sort of uh you know uh, well we evangelize by baptizing new babies you know i mean (laughs) sometimes that's all all it is for for certain branches of the church um but also a high view of the sacraments and reverence for the liturgy and so yeah i think you're right that we in america we kind of um and Again, in conservative Anglican circles, we've gotten the best of both worlds, and um, in, in in liberal Anglican circles, you kind of have the worst of of both worlds. <laughs> in a way, you know, it's like you might have a happy, clappy, like multicultural, you know, I don't know, like a a, a traditional Navajo dance on the way to the procession, and then you know, some kind of Buddhist blessing. And, you know, um, but you'll, it'll, you'll have the, the most uh, tridentine-looking altar you've ever seen, you know, <laughs> or something, you know. <laughs> it, it's kind of funny how it works for the other guys, and, and uh, I, I try not to think about it too much. But um, anyhow, yeah, good points, good points. Well, I suppose I better grab this next paragraph. The question first arises as to whether Newman's prophetical office of the church avowedly a defense of the Anglican via media, was conceived in loyalty to the spirit of the Caroline Divines. So the author thought it to be, and on the face of it the animus of the book would appear to support his view. The attack on Romanism is powerful, indeed in places unmeasured if not virulent. If In no modern work will one find a more eloquent exposition of the Anglican attitude towards fundamentals and infallibility." In the chapters dealing directly with these subjects, he speaks with a philosophical consistency and clarity to which the older theologians seldom attained. Under the influence of Butler, he even went beyond what the 17th century would have granted in its revolt from the pretensions of infallibility. Quote, we, for our part, he declares categorically, have been taught to consider that faith, in its degree, as well as conduct, must be guided by probabilities, and that doubt is ever our portion in this life. Nevertheless, there are passages in the book which awaken a suspicion that his apology for Anglicanism was dictated more by affection, a perfectly sincere sentiment, for the communion of his birth than by the native propension of his mind and that his hostility to rome was caused in part by misunderstanding and in part by an unconscious impulse of self-defense and this apprehension is confirmed by his attitude towards the higher criticism of the bible which was before many years before very many years to trouble the sleepy conscience of the church
0: yeah, I unfortunately am not particularly familiar with that uh, that 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 specific work of Newman's. Not off the top of my head, anyway. So, I I really can't say what he mm. what he has to say um, much about that. But it it almost seems like like he's he's suggesting that Newman was already Roman in his heart, but he was still too English to be Roman.
1: Right. That he sort of um, what his opposition to Rome was was basically of came from a national identity. Uh, but that his arguments weren't necessarily the most informed, I guess, according to Moore. I, I've got a punt on this one, too. Sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that one day, maybe, if we're lucky. That's right. That's right. We'll, whole, we'll do a whole show on it, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah,
0: I'll, uh, I'll take the next paragraph in that case. Great. Now, historically considered, Newman's conservatism may not be of much importance, since it was shared by most of his countrymen. But one gets the impression that his fundamentalism, quote, in the modern, not the Caroline sense of the word, was not due to ignorance of German and would have been as as strong were he living today as it was in the mid-19th century, that it was in fact symptomatic of a deep-seated craving for the support of an absolute external authority which, from the beginning and despite all his protests, he was dimly conscious of needing for his faith. It is significant that in the prophetical office, after his large, if not too large, concessions to probability, after his dismission of, quote, the claim of infallibility, unquote, as, quote, an expedient, that is, a cunning device of Rome, for impressing strongly upon the mind the necessity of hearing and obeying the church, quote, he proceeds to plead for an infallible organ of authority compounded of, quote, scripture, antiquity, and catholicity, End quote, of which the Church of England is the sacred custodian. It is a disputable thesis, but one for which a good case may be made, that Newman, deep down in his heart, was never in full sympathy with the liberal spirit of the seventeenth century, and that the Oxford movement, so far as it was swayed by his genius, has not been without danger of leading the Church away from the line of its normal development.
1: Wow. You know, I kind of am sympathetic to Newman contra Moore right now. Yeah, me too, a little <laughs> bit, yeah. Um, I, I think that Moore is, is speaking with the confidence of someone who lives in an age when it made sense to be really confident in the German higher criticism. And we happen to live after that age, and we've seen the, a major shakedown from people like N.T. Wright and other very respected biblical scholars... And nowadays, I mean, I'll admit, when I read that someone was a fundamentalist back then, all that really tells me is that there's gonna be less nonsense that I have to sift through when they talk about scripture. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking a, a master's in theology uh, program right now online, and um, the, the Old Testament teacher I'm learning from, uh, has, is a big proponent of the uh, canonical uh, criticism school, which is to say that hey, what if we um, allowed these debates that have their sources in uh, people who seem to think that a certain person could never write in two different kinds of literary styles, or you know, <laughs> or that um, you know they're waiting to see the archaeological evidence or, or what have you. But let's just assume for a moment that we can read these as the theological texts of the church. And we'll allow those other day- debates to unfold. And if they have something actually definitive to say, then we can take it seriously. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. I, it's such a breath of uh, fresh air. Yeah, and, when, I was, um, when I was doing
0: my master's studies, my, or my first master's, I'm, I'm fixing to start my second one. Um, awesome. my Texan just slipped through with the fix two. my goodness. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, when I was doing my, my, my first master studies, we, we did touch on some of the German stuff, but you could tell that it was, and, and some of the book was written from that perspective, the textbooks, but you could tell that it was not in particular favor with the school or the, or the the teachers. And so, yeah, we touched on like the JEDP theory, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. um, we generally were just okay, what does the text itself have to say? That was kind of the, the the approach that we took, which was very helpful
1: right and it's not as though we shouldn't be aware of what these other theories say and maybe um, you know really listen to them and understand what what their motivations are, but I think that really it does go when you look at and examine closely what the motivations of some of this. Um, and not all of it, but some of the higher critical, you know, thinking is, it basically is to say, hey, we can't ever assume that something supernatural is going on here. Right. Well, right. sorry, I'm a Christian, not a whatever you guys are. <laughs> so <laughs> so supernatural stuff happens to be a big part of what, what I'm interested in learning about here. So.
0: And I've been hearing, I listen to a lot of podcasts uh, in, in throughout the week, but um I've, in in particular, this has popped up recently both in the Gospel Coalition's podcast and in, I believe, um, the White Horse Inn uh, podcast. This idea that, um, you know, scripture doesn't ever ask us to take something on blind faith, but that scripture always uh, points to evidence. It's, 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 when you read, for example, the sermons of uh, Paul and Peter that we have recorded in, um, the New Testament and the book of Acts in particular, they read more like court testimony than like like a persuasive you know hmm. evangelist argument
1: yeah that's that's fascinating stuff and and I think um yeah, understanding the context of what's really going on in the text that you're reading can really help to bridge that gap between you know a twenty first century person wanting to understand. Uh, God's Word and the the people who were actually um, in, the inspired writers. I think uh, there's there are many um, useful tools to helping to understand scripture and that's <laughs> but sometimes um, it, it's very obvious when you can tell very obviously when there's someone who's trying to understand it in light of faith and trying to understand it seemingly to the exclusion of the possibility of faith. Yeah. And uh, well, what anyways... Do I... of
0: uh, what do you think of Newman's, um, uh, the, the authority compounded of uh, scripture, antiquity, and catholicity?
1: Um, <laughs> I thought that was interesting uh, because I kind of, I, I liked the idea of it, but he calls it this infallible organ of authority. Um, presumably organ of the church. Um, it sounds kind of Roman to me to be honest um, but I think you know the Eastern Orthodox would say this too and um, it, it I'm not sure I, I don't really know if I would say that I think the church is prophetic has a prophetic voice has a prophetic calling. We just have so many examples of when the church has exercised that voice and been wrong. Right. So I don't know if... I would say that it has... That such an organ does exist, (laughs) although the infallible part could perhaps only be uh, ascribed to the scripture, and that antiquity and Catholicity are useful, but... um, you know, we just there's there's no such thing as the infallible Anglican magisterium. We just don't have that, and frankly, neither did Rome for a long time. So, and, and we also
0: find, especially, I
1: mean, I, I agree
0: with you there. I, I like the that being a rule of of, of looking at things. You mm-hmm. know, if, if we go you know, going back to you know the uh, Saint Venture, Vincent of um, uh canon, you know the uh, uh, that which has been, been believed everywhere. By everybody and by all, or always, mm-hmm. everywhere, and by all. Um, I'm, I'm missing up the quote, <laughs> but uh, all three of those
1: things, regardless of the order. Yes,
0: exactly. Uh, but um, you know, as as a way of looking at things, but again, it's that infallible word that's the problem. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and you know, I do I do a lot of reading from from the fathers and from the reformers. I'm by no means a, a scholar in either of those, but you know, I I do spend a lot of time reading those. And you you find that on the same passage of scripture, um, sometimes they're gonna the fathers are gonna completely contradict each other. There mm-hmm. there is no such thing as um, the unified voice of the fathers on on many 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 subjects. I mean, there's there's some on a few, but, right. but not on everything. And the right. reformers even less so. Not that the reformers were thrown into uh, Newman's uh, thinking here, but
1: <laughs> they they don't seem to have been no. No, yeah, I, I agree. I think whenever someone I hear someone talking of the fathers, the fathers this, they say this, they say that, um, I always assume they are an a young convert to either Eastern Orthodoxy or a sort of Anglo-Catholic high churchmanship. And I think, you know, if you stick at it and you keep reading those fathers that you love to rely on so much, you'll probably find that they're not as in harmonious agreement on everything that you think you know and the agreement that they have is um well it's called the nicene creed right and you know we, we have these councils and they include debate right you know? oh yeah oh, so yeah. so uh it's all there go you know take and read as they say um but should we uh finish this paragraph off this last one because i think it's uh, going to disclose kind of Moore's final take on this, these issues of biblical criticism and authority.
0: Yeah, let's go for that.
1: Okay, it's it's a big one. Do you mind if I read sort of the to the bottom of this page and then you take up the second part at the Roman Curia? Sure. Okay. Certainly... At least any one who comes fresh from reading the Caroline Divines to Gore and the other essayists of Lux Mundi will feel that there, rather than in Newman, he has picked up again the straight continuity of direction. That book of essays is not final, it is rather a new beginning, but in its determination to face the results of increased knowledge. Particularly as shown by the editor in his preface to the tenth edition, and in its frank extension of fallibility to the Bible, while insisting on the personality of Christ and on the incarnation as the fundamental dogma on which the whole fabric of Christianity rests, one breathes again that air of larger freedom which frightened Newman into the prison house of absolutism. It would be interesting, if space permitted to show in detail how exultantly the leaders of Anglican thought, since the appearance of Lux Mundi, have responded to this reacquired note of intellectual liberty. We know what has happened in the other great branches of the church.
0: The Roman Curia has condemned both the good and the bad of modernism unflinchingly, and it would seem irredeemably, For their part, the radical Protestants would have either clung to an impossible theory of scriptural inerrancy, and so have put themselves hopelessly out of court, or else, bowing to the results of the higher criticism, have seen their faith in the fundamentals of religion to go down in ruins along with their anti-Catholic Biblia idolatry. With the recent literature of, quote, fundamentalism on the one side, and of the uh, liberal as each theology, I use the phrases technically, on the other side, one need only compare such works to name a few out of many as Essay's Catholic and Critical, Canon Quick's Christian Sacraments, Sir Edwin Hoskins and Mr. Noel Davies' Riddle of the New Testament, Dr. K. E. Kirk's Vision of God, Professor A. E. Taylor's Faith of a Moralist, and the more recent essays on Northern Catholicism to see the advantage of this line of the Via Media, upon which the Church of England started out more than three centuries
1: ago. Excellent. Um, okay, well, this last paragraph of this section really gives away uh, everything that is sort of undergirding Moore's attitude to, in the these earlier evaluations of the Carolines and, the Oxford Movement and Newman, et cetera, wouldn't you say?
0: Yes, I mean he's he's trying to, to chart that middle way between liberalism and fundamentalism, and and he thinks that uh, that that's that's really where things are going with the Caroline Divines, uh, and and again those are those are categories that just wouldn't have appealed or, you know, appeared on the radar for the Caroline Divines, those were not yeah. their issues.
1: Yeah, and and for those who maybe are not familiar. Uh, Lux Mundi was the a compilation of essays uh, sort of orchestrated by one Charles Gore, who was Bishop of Oxford. I guess he was born 1853 and died 1932, and so actually may, may have been a contemporary of Paul Elmer Moore, um, I'm wondering, hmm. or maybe an earlier contemporary, but... Um, Uh, Yeah, Lux Mundi was this attempt to uh, marry together certain insights from the German higher criticism uh, with an attempt at a sort of canonically Catholic and conservative, or you could say at least traditional, um, theology. They ended up, you know, wanting to, they, they wanted to preserve the incarnation of Christ, But they, you know, so much doubt had been cast on the veracity of scripture um, through these higher critical uh, scholarship and uh, that it seemed that their their whole goal was to sort of save Jesus from the Bible that could no longer be trusted.
0: Right, right. Rescue the text from itself, that kind of
1: thing. Exactly. So they, they weren't, you know, they weren't whole hog liberals who just, or you could say secularists, who just wanted to reject it altogether. They were trying to be as fair to what they thought or regarded in their day as the best of modern uh, uh, textual scholarship at the time. And also, uh, you know, maintain their faith. And this goes back to this issue of faith and reason, which is, you know, was a huge issue deal for the middle middle age theologians and St. Thomas Aquinas is constantly dealing with this and um there would be you know different people would deal and deal with it in different ways and I think my my biggest complaint with this sort of uh, strand of thinking is that the assumption is always that whatever the new fangled modern discovery is that it sort of is given this absolutist <laughs> authority like we can't possibly have you know discover anything more about the scriptures than than we what we've just learned and of course now you and I with the the perspective of hindsight can say eh, sorry guys but you know um there've actually been a lot of archaeological discoveries that have supported some pretty old-fashioned traditional views of authorship and authority and so you know it, it the problem with giving reason such an absolutist uh position in this faith reason uh you could say dialogue or um sort of integration is that faith ends up always having to do the movement right. and you never you never uh say you know what i can hold out this traditional view until you guys have um, come to a conclusion. And if you want a great parallel to this, then, you know, just pay attention to what uh, scientists and the medical community is telling you um, is important about your diet, right? <laughs> is it high calorie, low calorie? Is it high fat, low fat? Is it some fats are good, no fats are good? Is sugar the worst thing in the world or is it cholesterol? Right, right. right. You know, if you pay attention for six months, you will get dizzy, and if you take it seriously, you might starve, <laughs> you <know? laughs> or or develop some terrible, you know, uh, eating habit. It, the case The case happens to be that even in the most scientific and um, you could say uh, empirical fields that we have, which is frankly uh, biblical criticism. Sort of traverses into the er- areas of literature and theology, and so um, doesn't even have this purely empirical kind of uh, basis. Uh, P- the experts, quote unquote, just keep changing their minds. Right,
0: right. And and this is this is again where I really appreciate um, how at the time of the Reformation the concept of sola scriptura actually did have a relatively narrow focus you know the issue is justification Mm -hmm. you know or as our article says the scriptures containeth all things necessary for salvation and so it's you know the, the the issues of faith and morals are 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 the issues um you know and and i think sometimes you know both both on the on the fundamentalist end you know classically speaking where there was a reaction against the scholarship they throw out too much or on the the liberal end where in in somewhat of a reaction against fundamentalism they throw out too much um where you start to just have really really silly things um you know you you don't you don't go to the bible as a um as a science textbook because science is an is an issue that just doesn't isn't isn't a biblical issue? I mean, that and that doesn't mean that the biblical narrative is unreliable, but that does mean you're asking questions that the Bible was not there to answer.
1: Right. Absolutely. And, and I think whenever we approach Scripture, God's Word, we should do so as uh, students trying to discern what it has to say, right. not with this expectation of what it needs to tell us. You know? Right. What do you
0: think of the idea of, um, there being primary, secondary, and even tertiary, uh, issues within scripture? I, I recently heard, heard, uh, a preacher that I have a lot of respect for, um, you know, basically say, well, you know, there are, no, there's no such thing because if it's, if it's a scriptural issue, that means it's primary. Um,
1: and I, I, get what he's saying, but I'm not sure I fully agree with that. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, in and in one way to think about it could be to say well what are what are sort of the dangers maybe that he's perceiving that could come from making too much of this and And I think those are kind of obvious that you would get uh, maybe a situation where, well, if it's secondary or tertiary, then maybe it's not really as inspired or as authoritative um, and so you kind of get this earlier issue we discussed of, you know, where's the real scripture within the scripture? Right. You know, does it contain God's word? Um, or if it's not other. a salvation issue, I can blow it off kind of kind of thing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And the other issue is, you know, maybe one that uh, it seems that the, the reformers were concerned with, which is to say that... Um, Scripture, you know, this idea of faith and, and morals. It, the Scripture contains all things necessary unto salvation. Um, it also seems to contain a bunch of other stuff, too. <laughs> right, right. Right? And um, that other information is not unimportant. It's not uh, uninspired. It isn't directly related to uh, the issue presented by your sin, and your need for salvation and a savior in the person of Jesus Christ, um, not directly, you could say, and so and so maybe that's better—a better way of looking at it is like, well, everything here is important, but what is it? What is its particular aim? Like, what right. is the issue at hand? Some scripture is really kind of trying to give us a picture of uh, how God can uh, relate to an entire people. Or, you know, what a theocratic government would even look like, you know, in the Old Testament. Or um, how God relates to evil people in, you know, there's that sort of startling moment where God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And and I always, I just think that's a mysterious and fascinating passage um, with a lot of interesting implications. Um, And and you see other
0: passages where Pharaoh hardens his own heart, so you have this, you know, kind of... Okay, who's who's doing the hardening, you know, this text seems to say yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely right. Yeah. And I think that's such an important insight to uh, theology in general, which is to say, if things seem to be saying if there seems to be two or more suggestions, let's not assume that one contradicts the other. Right, which is exactly what I was taught in this sort of highly critical Old Testament. He's like, "Well, which one's right and which one's wrong?" I was like, "Do they have to be?" Right. And then of course he's like, "All right, fundamentalist." You know, (laughs) (laughs) like, is there a is there an interpretation that gives you know, that gives both their their time in the sun or whatever? So, yeah, I think. also there's this idea that all of scripture is is uh useful and necessary necessary but um n- it doesn't necessarily all need to be useful in the same way right not
0: everything that is descriptive is prescriptive exactly S- and you know that and that's that's a that's a mistake that i've i've a lot of times okay we see somebody doing something in the bible so we assume that the bible is endorsing it i was reading in my in my Private devotions I've been going through first um, uh, and second Samuel and today's passage was where um, uh, David's and Bathsheba's first son is born and, and he gets that visit from Nathan the prophet and mm-hmm. you know the you're the man kind of thing but not in the way that we would have said ten years ago you the man not like that uh, <laughs> so, right but uh, uh, and, and you know you, you could you could almost take you know especially since Solomon the heir comes from that union, you could; it would be very easy to take this perspective that says, "Well, um, you know, dis- despite the nasty beginnings, uh, you know, God is, um, in some sense, blessing David's prerogative to to do whatever he wants as a king." But I notice that, you know, even you know, when that first child is born, even after Uriah is dead, and you assume they've kind of officially gotten married in whatever way that looks like. Uh, that the text continues to call her Uriah's wife. You know this this subtle right. disapproval, despite the text describing um, other things. You know it's it's it's, it's interesting anyway. You had me thinking.
1: Yeah, no, there there is uh, uh, the the misdeed doesn't seem to be uh, erased from the picture that so to speak. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, yeah, I think that this is. Uh, and, and this is the kind of sort of way we can approach scripture and we don't necessarily always have to have it all figured out. I mean, right. it, it seems almost silly that, that I have to say that um, because I think there are there are great mysteries uh, contained within scripture. And in fact, um, in the case of, you know, Job pressing God with some very specific questions, the answer itself is a sort of appeal to mystery. That is to say, where were you, Job? You let me know when you're the creator of the universe, and then I'll give you your answer. So to, you know, which is to say, it's not going to happen. There are certain things that can only be known by God. And even scripture itself seems to uh, draw us in, along that path into that sort of humble acknowledgement um, as much as it does disclose and as much as everything it discloses is useful, um, not everything that it discloses is necessarily um, for us to understand 100%. Yep. Or even infallibly, you could say. Um, well, on that note, I think we should uh, call it a day and pick up with the next section and we'll see if uh, if Andrew can join us for that one.
0: That sounds great.
1: Take care, Jesse. Thanks, Father. You too. Bye.
0: It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we served and suffered a while a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory
1: of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is
0: a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at
1: n-o-r-t-h-a-m anglican.com.